0: Welcome back to Dance Planning. We are joined by a very special guest today, formerly of Gantt, currently of Guns, Mr. Christopher Bastin. How are you doing?
1: This is it, we're firing you. Yeah. Danny's taking over. Stouffer. It's all fair, yeah. Danny. Hello. How did you come across Mr. Christopher Bastin?
0: As an avid Throne Fitz fan, listened to your podcast, it was brilliant. And then I myself am a Gantt ambassador. Thank you very much. Uh, I don't know if you've actually formally ever said that on the podcast as outright
1: feels good you worked with them on a really exciting project recently which was the gantt archive exhibition which is the reason you're here with us today as well because not only we're going to talk about that you know danny's heading there later we're going to shoot some content around there and show show everyone uh, in the uk what that's about but we're going to get that into that properly later because first we need to know who are you and what it was like Growing up in Sweden, what was the fashion saying? Did you care? Did you only realise once your name translated to fabric, you're like, I'm destined
2: for this. Yeah, so I I grew up on this uh, island outside of Stockholm called Lidinge, kind of the posher parts of, of the city, I guess. Upper middle class, just like, you know, normal kid... Good childhood, blah blah blah. <laughs> I was always into music. I played the piano and drums and guitar and all that stuff. So the plan for me was to become a rock star. Who are the inspirations?
0: Uh, who are you listening to? Clash. Sick.
2: Mainly
1: Clash. Just chose so. drama. That's who you wanted
2: to be. <laughs> and then with like some the the Swedish like punk scene was was like, quite big back then as well. So we mainly did Clash covers on our gigs. We had two gigs, by the way. <laughs> uh, and we were called Janrar, uh, which in, in English would translate directly to Iron Pipes. Because if we, like, if we broke through internationally, we thought, that that's a sick name. <laughs> which, you know, now... You realize that was a fucking awful name. Great, great name for a plumber. Yeah, exactly. So, no, and then I was uh, I was interning at my last year in high school and um, I was going to this uh, record store. They only sold classical music. I had hair down here, so that didn't work out with the guy working there. He's like, get out of my store. Um, so I ended up working in this denim store, selling denim and, you know, did my military service and, uh, you know, got back. Didn't know what to do. Go back into that store and kind of saw that side of, like, fashion. I wasn't, like, super interested in in fashion when I was a kid. I wasn't, like, one of those, like, you know creative minds that I started like sewing my own pants when I was four I cared I've always cared about like but I think I've always cared more about beautiful things in general
1: and I suppose kind of like what you said then it keeps coming up on this podcast is the link between I suppose music and we have some people who are, who are based in music who then end up working within fashion was that sort of the inspiration like what Joe Strum was wearing what these like punks were wearing or were you? no totally I mean different? if I would
2: have like even tried to dress punk I would like one, I would have been the laughing stock <laughs> uh, of the entire school because it was very like it was actually very kind of preppy. It was like shirts and jeans, and you know, and like the only ones that like stood out in the school where I grew up was like the metalheads because like Kiss was massive. It was also like very frowned upon to like even you know look go different. out the norm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was like fiber ones. A button-down shirt and then you know cowboy boots for oh, some reason like, American, I mean, yeah. very in now yeah very yeah, yeah. exactly very long. um <laughs> yeah so so i ended up being a sales assistant in a in a, in a very very cool <clears throat> store i have to say in in stockholm like the only really cool store back then what was the an invert solo is, is it still, still there now it isn't it was uh it was bought up a couple of years ago and kind of like disappeared into oblivion at that time we sold more diesel than any other account in Northern Europe, and like shout out Glen Martin's because that was when diesel broke through the first time. And I'm yeah. really old, so this would be like '92. <laughs> yeah, ish. so this is like when I suppose
1: like the big the motif was like the big punk with the mohawks on and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The one that
2: they scrapped.
1: Yeah, I For mean good reasons maybe. Yeah, exactly. The connotation sometimes yeah, are not the best. It didn't age well, did it? No, <laughs> um, but then. You know, at some point you've landed in Gantt, yeah. in Sweden. Now, I've got this question because for me growing up, I always knew Gant, Gantt, Rugger, and I always thought it was American. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So oh, okay. so where did <laughs> that transition from America to Sweden happen?
2: So Gantt started in 1949 in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, by the Gantt family. Bernard, Gantt, and his two sons, Marty and Elliot. And prior to becoming their own label, they were a subcontractor to a various amounts of brands like Arrow, L.L. Bean, and others. And 1949, when Marty and Elliot had come back from, they both served in the Second World War, came back, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, people were taking vacation. It was like we were going into the, like, 50s. Things were like, America! Mm -hmm. So things were good. So that gave them kind of the courage. And at the same time, what happened in the U.S. is that Ivy Style, as we refer to it now, that kind of American, a different version of American sports where it was kind of born with brands like J Press and Brooks Brothers and Abercrombie and Fitch and all that stuff and then Gant was right there with them and started up their own factories and started producing under their own name. As the year passed by, we did predominantly shirts for the first 25 30 years. I started dabbling a little bit with jersey in the in the 60s that turned into the heavy ruggers and those kind of things. And then we became a very, very big brand in the US. Uh, and what happened is in the beginning of the 1980s, there were three Swedish guys: Klaus Stefan, and Leonard who were actively, look because they were all working together at Jockey, the underwear brand, and they they wanted a brand of their own to bring over to Europe. They were looking at Perielis, they were looking at Gantt, they were even looking at the license distribution for Lacoste, which is funny, I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> uh, cliffhanger. <laughs> um, and so they ended up signing an agreement with Gantt to distribute Gantt in, in Sweden and Scandinavia and then Europe. And what happened is that very quickly they realized that the American collections didn't really work through sizing and silhouette and stuff like that so I think just like a year and a half two years later uh, they got a design license as well so they started designing into a Gantt collection that was meant for the European market but with you know everything being very Gant. But what also happened in the U.S. is that the company was sold a number number of times, and and people forgot about the legacy and the heritage with each kind of acquisition of the company. So the history got lost, quality got lost, greed kind of came creeping and so always happens <laughs> low quantity massive volumes and it ended up being more or less uh, an outlet brand in the, you know TK Maxx and all that stuff while the european gant was growing massively and focusing only on like really high quality and premium fabrics and producing everything in europe and stuff like that so it was two opposites of the same brand basically and then in 1998 the license agreement came to an end and PBH was then the owner of Gantt, uh, wanted to buy the license back for a very large sum of money that would have made these guys very rich. They already made a bunch of money from, from Gantt, but... And instead, they said, like, you know, fuck it, we'll just buy the brand uh, from PVH. So in 98, they acquired the brand from PVH. So then Gantt actually became a Swedish-owned brand. Uh, but up until then, it had been, like, an, uh, an American brand, but... To us in Europe, the story becomes very blurred because we did everything right except educate people on the story of the brand. Hence, a lot of people think that we're a Swedish brand or we're a European brand and like uh, Ralph knockoff and all that yeah, stuff that whereas, But it, you, yeah. you
1: were there, I mean, those names you mentioned, like J Press and Brooks Bros, they are the, the pinnacle of like, the of right, like exactly. Americana, I suppose. Yeah. But you guys were right alongside with them, which is again, something we, I suppose we
2: didn't really know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, hence, We'll get into the archive exhibition as well, but I mean, you know, and me being an extreme nerd when it comes to all this stuff, (laughs) I think it's really important to tell the consumers about, like, the legacy. Of the brand.
0: So why do you think the, the lads from Sweden
2: chose to acquire a, an American brand that was so American? Because they're really good businessmen. I can only speak for Klaus and Staffan and especially Klaus that I worked very closely with for the first like three years at Gantt. They're also extremely aesthetic and extremely creative in what they do and I think that they saw in Gantt the opportunity to to introduce something to people that felt like very authentic and very real because there was Ralph Who was, I should also add, was barely present in Europe in the beginning of the 80s. It was tiny, to be honest. So they just saw this like opportunity to just like. So were you
1: a fan of the brand before you joined?
2: I can honestly say when I applied for the job at Gantt in 2005, I'd only been into a Gantt store to buy shirts for my dad. It was because where I came from, it was not really on my radar when I was a kid, but like all my parents, like the parents, like everybody was wearing it. It was, it was like massive in Sweden in the 90s, Gantt was like everywhere.
1: Were they putting a European twist on it? And, you know, there's some huge, huge, huge brands that like we love to get mentioned every week on this podcast from Sweden. And Our
2: legacy. Actually, yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: The Has the European element of Gantt, does that really show now, do you think?
2: <laughs> The upside to being, here comes a nice slogan, born in the US, raised in Europe, ta-da, um, <laughs> which we've used frequently. No, but it's also true. I mean, we were born in, in the US, but raised in Europe as a brand. And I think it gives us a little bit more freedom and a little bit more um, room to play than, say, you know, Tommy, Ralph, etc., who who might be better off, like, sticking to their guns. Yeah. So we we try to kind of infuse what we do with a little bit of, European whimsiness sometimes and you know we've gone more British we've gone more Scandi and I hate when we kind of get lost and and that's a big part of my job is to kind of like you know protect the brand be on the wall so to speak but it's also like it's nice to have that area of playing around with your brand we also don't take ourselves very seriously so well, we it, don't have to because we you know we've been around for 75 years now so
1: you got you got the heritage that you're allowed to yeah. have a bit of fun with so now. like if
2: but it's also fun because you know if disco comes back I'm like done it <laughs> <laughs> we have got like five disco shirts in the archives so we'll just like so. pop those outside stunning i think danny danny wants one of those i've got one in 100 percent polyester that we oh made god. especially for intercontinental hotel in florida miami <laughs> that you will absolutely fucking. Love. is it in the
1: exhibition yes it is okay, okay so we'll have a look, look at that one later yeah.
0: so when you applied for gantt first time round did you apply as like top dog or was it oh god did no. you
2: did you, Ach, you know, am i top dog now i am yeah i guess so. i think so. I'm you know, I assume so um no i didn't gantt was the first Company where I joined to work 100% on the creative side of things. I don't have a formal training as a designer. I came from a background of production, product development, you know, visiting factories, getting like shit done, more working very closely with the design teams on the companies where I worked before, which entails, you know, HM, Acne, YRED, you know, I've been to a lot of like different brands. But I was always like the one executing what the design department you know, had in mind. And also I started with like, you know, buying and production. So you kind of learn how to actually do clothes and then the, the other stuff came along. But I also think I realized when I was working at Acne that what I wanted to do was the creative stuff because I like sucked that the other stuff to be honest i wasn't like a, a good no good at like planning volumes well to say it's, like it's a
1: little bit more exciting than the creative stuff rather than it working, working lot, with spreadsheets it, it's a
2: lot sexier yes it yeah. is yeah um, the title sexier as well oh yeah um, which you know
1: we'll get into exactly what that title is yeah
2: and what i what i actually do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was actually a colleague of mine when i was working for a swedish department store doing their private label menswear because we didn't have a designer for that role we had a, a freelance designer but he wasn't like always in the office so i ended up designing a lot of stuff on my own i was like It's like, it's not that difficult. But then I'd been in the industry for like 15 years already. So I kind of knew what I wanted, what I needed to do. So a friend of mine at work came in like, Gant is looking for a shirt designer. You need to leave this fucking place just you know go and like blossom yeah yeah which was very gracious of her and i i came to gantt came into the interview first thing i said is like i don't have any formal training as a designer i can't draw i'm like i'm (laughs) drawing (laughs) and i really like sold myself shorts and then Klaus was sitting there and 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 he basically designed everything for that brand for the first like from 1980 up until 2000 himself together with the other guys and he was like i've never gone to school either but i've gone to the proper school. <laughs> um, so he was like, don't worry school about it. School of hard mate. knocks. Yeah, <laughs> so they said like, we're, "We're. this is the plan, these are like the collections we work with, come back in two weeks and like present it to us, you know, and that was it. And I, I got the job, and I was scared shitless because I was like, "I'm a designer now. This is never going to fly."
0: But at least you weren't living a lie. At least you kind of came in there honestly. You didn't, didn't fake it till you make it. You yeah, went
2: in there. I'm still faking it, <laughs> so <laughs> so it's uh, no. But it sounds weird, but it doesn't make you work harder because everybody needs to work hard. But I think I doubt myself more than a lot of other people in this role because the lack of formal and training and and you feel a little bit like a fraud, you know, sitting there with the other designers and like. I went to Central Saint Martins. I went to a smod. I was like, I worked at Acne for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But you learn by doing. And and then the craft from like going, you know, sitting with fabrics and learning how to design fabrics and constructions. And there's not a lot of stuff I don't know by now about the industry and how to do the job. So
0: I mean, I guess not having formal training isn't always a bad thing because you can come at it with an honest
1: approach. Instead of coming through where it's like, there's X, Y, and Z rule. You hadn't learnt the bad um, sort of techniques of like just being lazy. You are like, well, why can't we do this? You, I suppose you were able to challenge stuff a bit more. Or you are like, no, I was too scared to do that. I just, <laughs> <laughs> no, I was banging I think, out Oxford shirts. I, th-
2: I think, you know, I think I was so adamant of like learning how to do things. So I just like soaked everything up. I also was fortunate enough to work with people that were very like generous with their knowledge. Like they didn't like, you know, gatekeep stuff, yeah. like keep stuff secret. They were just like pouring out. I was like, just like a sponge and just like Teach me so that was yeah I mean it turned out all right so what exactly goes into shirt design I mean surely
0: for brands already got existing shirts there's almost like a the patterns are the there. pattern head. yeah
2: exactly uh, and I think when I started working with Gantt it all became because working with the previous brands and stuff like that it was a shirt's a shirt and they, like that's it but since yeah. the shirt was that's our iconic product and the, the amount of like detail and, and nerdiness that goes into A shirt is actually astonishing, just the way you change the number of stitches per inch on a poplin from an oxford to you change the entire perception of the entire garment when i came on board i'd never designed fabrics before so that was a very long process of actually understanding how warp and wefts interact with each other with different yarn counts and, and different thread count and and like thickness of and two plies and all that stuff so fabric to me became my whole world together with class so we were actually not buying any fabrics from the mills we were developing them together with the mills, but we designed every check and stripe ourselves, mostly based on vintage swatches from swatch houses in New York or LA or Paris. And I mean, it's weird because there's a whole business just selling old cuttings from from old non-defunct, like now defunct mills yeah. from around the world. And it could be like 17th century Dutch tapestry. And it's like, let's make a paisley out of that. And then you have to break things down and kind of deconstruct them to put them back together again.
1: You mentioned about being nerdy earlier. And, it, some, and again, now you believe me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something that comes up on this podcast all the time, you know, like everyone thinks fashion, everyone's really cool, but actually everyone's a nerd. Because you have yeah, to yeah. be well, to no, get into it. Everyone who's worthwhile is a nerd.
0: Like, I mean, the passion's not there, you can see it. But then when people, like the most interesting people are just nerdy with it.
1: Yeah. And I suppose, like, where did that real nerdiness come in? If you said you weren't super into like the fashion side of things when you were growing up, at what point was it while you were at Gant, or was it was when you were developing your in the industry? You were like, holy shit, there is so much for me to learn. And was that the spark for like the archive? Because you started building that archive yourself, didn't you? The spark. You? The
2: spark. The <laughs> spark. New trademark. I mean, it, it began way earlier. I grew up, my grandfather on my paternal side uh, was an artist, a painter. His wife, Irma, was a photographer. She was the first female photographer in Stockholm with her own studio. She gave all that up for kids. Don't do that. (laughs) Um, And my my mother's mother, my grandmother on maternal side uh, worked. She was the account manager for Dior in NK. Wow. For like 40 years. So I, I kind of grew up with very like beautiful things yeah like my mom and dad zero interest in aesthetics whatsoever so i think it skipped a generation uh music the interest for i i did a lot of photography when i was in high school so i think it started very early i was very peculiar about like or particular like my room when i was you know 14 and this was like 86 87 uh, everything was black and white chrome <laughs> uh, i had a. A white electric guitar on the wall with a single dried rose hanging from it. (laughs) But then again, you would, you know, if you would shoot that today, it was like, fuck yeah. So it kind of started there. But then when I started working at that denim store, I got into denim, like deep, deep into heavy stuff, like started collecting vintage denim. And again, you know, fortunate enough to work with like the only guy in sweden at that time together with like maybe five other extremely nerdy guys collecting vintage denim because this this was like 89 90 that i started there who knew like yeah for a big e there was like literally there was like 10 people in sweden who even knew about it and i happened to work with one of them Mats. uh shout out Mats, who taught me like everything and i started collecting and i became obsessive and like the first three times i went to a vintage store and like Came back with a pair of Levi's and I was like, is this um, a salvage?" He's like, no, man." How much do you pay for it? He's like, 200. Um, He's like, fuck. No, this, this is like shit. So, it t- you know, like yeah. with everything else. And then whether it's like wine or whatever it is, you get this kind of acquired taste, not just for the obsession you have, but with everything else. Because if you realize that a pair of jeans, which to most people is a pair of jeans, but when you get down to the nitty gritty and start like oh right so the the wrangler label the bluebell sign on the top of the wrangler label tilted you know in 57 and then so this (laughs) needs you know you get very crazy yeah and then when you start applying that to other things like when i started at gantt and i realized because then i'd been a denim head for about a part of like 20 years and have a enormous collection of you know that old stuff up in the attic because i can't have it in the house um (laughs) coming to Gantt and then I'm getting off topic here, but then coming to Ghent and realizing that where is everything? Because understanding that, you know, we started in 1949, like the birth of American sportswear. Like, where's the good stuff? I'm like, so where's the US things? Yeah. And like, nah, we don't have any. I'm like, what, are you kidding? Fucking hell. So it was like zero. That's um, why, especially from Denim,
1: which is, you know, like, you know, Cone Mills, all the Americana. Right. You were very much like, I want the American stuff. Where yeah. is that American stuff? Yeah. And was that what sort of sparked you going, we need an archive?
2: Yeah, and it was it was really good because my CEO back then kind of got it. He understood that, you know, the storytelling of the brand, educating our consumer, because it's also, I mean, it, it, you need a reason to exist as a nobody really needs another Oxford button-down shirt. So in order to be a preferred brand, that legacy gives you a, a, a reason for being. And it also, like, shows the expertise that you've gathered over the, like, like seven decades as a shirt maker so to me it became extremely important first of all because it's like fun to kind of collect stuff hoard but then also there's so much information that gets lost with every acquisition of the brand i mean we've been sold and bought uh before we bought the brand in 98 i think we were sold and bought like five times and when we were first sold in 68 they didn't think you know what happened 10 years earlier you know in the mid 50s that's not particularly interesting Get rid of it.
0: So with the people like when it comes
2: to the archive, is that borrowed from people who've
0: bought it in the past and then you mm. bought it back off them or is it from the brand where they've kept stuff?
2: I basically bought every single piece in that archive from collectors, from eBay, a lot of eBay, <laughs> Etsy. And then as you go it you know, you start knowing people I mean, I single-handedly drove up the prices on, on vintage Gantt a thousand percent, I think. I mean, when are when you I,
1: purchasing it all? when I
2: started buying 2006, my second year at Gantt, when I kind of, you know, understood like the whole history and stuff, I used to pay like five, ten bucks uh, a piece. And, you know, cut to six years later and, and I get an email from a friend in New York. Dude, are you, like, are you the guy buying all that Gantt stuff? I'm like, yeah, man, I have a ton for you. And then all of a sudden they were like 70... 80, yeah, 90, so...
0: Well, before we... This is confusing. Before we head forward into the past, being the archive, what is your favorite piece that you've designed at Gantt now?
2: I mean, first of all, in the role of creative director, it's a lot more painting with, you know, the broad strokes. We have an amazing team of very, very talented designers and product developers and product managers, etc. So there are quite few pieces that I actually go in and design on my own. They don't particularly like when I do that. <laughs> because they're like, dude, there's a process here. And, you know, I fuck up their whole system. Go to and, like, school and learn it properly. Exactly. You'll find out. No, it's more like, because everything is extremely, like, organized and need, things needs to be done in a certain way. And then I come running with this idea of, like, could we do, like, a grisly version of, you know, the varsity and we could do this and this and this. And I, you know, I get the, the outerwear designer, Martin, all, like, fired up and he gets going. And then, you know, his manager is like... Dude, He's like know, a we pop-up-y. would have needed to book the fabrics for this like two months ago. Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so I mean, but I think and w- w- what we've done now is that because I used to head up, uh, we had a sub label called Rugger before, which I started and kind of ran. Me and, and Filippa in the beginning, uh, shout out Fifi, doing something back in 2009. We started working on it to get back on the map in the US because our like US existence was non-existent so we did a little capsule collection called Gantt Rugger and and there it was like a hundred percent like there wasn't a thread in that collection that didn't pass through our like hands so that was uh, extremely funny and extremely scary because I'd never designed the whole collection with all the kind of departments and stuff like that before and now what we've done to do something because we have this like mm, i mean we're a big brand we're in like i don't know 70 markets and you know
1: it's big what right? were you wearing during this period of time we do our research we saw in the you'd heyday seen, of hashtag menswear yeah yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> i <you> was know, <laughs> hashtag the, menswear you were you were a tumblr yes, I was. um so what were you wearing were you were you having to wear gantt every day or did no you mix no i mean up?
2: i i i think um i didn't have to wear gantt i i started wearing like i said when i came to gantt i didn't own any gant but once you got in there and re- realized like this like fantastic stuff and it it had aged really really well i think to me it was more about you know finding the pieces that i really loved so i started with but also i i did when i was working at acne i wasn't just wearing acne when i was working at actually when i was working at solo i only worked because my whole salary was spent on diesel and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but i i've never felt comfortable in costumes yeah so yeah. You know, And also, I mean, Gantt Rugger became, it was like my wardrobe. I designed clothes for myself that I loved and you know, hoped that like <clears throat> the, the hashtag menswear guys would, you know, you kind of knew that like if I love it, you know, most of yeah. these guys are going to love it too. Uh, so I went through and I basically had the same style, I would say, my entire life. It, it has like gone in cycles because I, I was never a trend guy. I was always like a style guy. Because style lasts forever. <laughs> um, so, so I've never been experimental with fashion. I mean, I think my most wild period was when I went like all vintage denim, like crazy. And everything I wore was like torn to pieces and like <laughs> smelly. And, but that was cool back then. So and then coming to Ghent and working with shirts and designing fabrics. And it was color, color. Everything was like color. And we've always been like a colorful preppy brand. So I I came to a point seven years ago, eight years ago, where I I just like I can't like do this anymore, like to myself, because I <laughs> my spend all my days thinking about what other people are wearing, what colors work, doing research and trends and trying to analyze, you know, the zeitgeist of things. So I just like fuck it. And I mean, I'm not I'm not Dan. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a clothes hanger either. So and I started like you know getting older got a bit fatter so i'm like fuck it i'll just go all black (laughs) yeah so i chucked everything out um and you know started designing black pieces for (laughs) can't there you go so i i I gradually just ended up going into this like world of of black which was really nice because i didn't have to bother in the morning so you know i bought like 20 black t-shirts five (laughs) pair of black jeans you know and then you know Occasionally, I would like throw because I still uh, love a blue Oxford it.
1: shirt on. I, I,
2: I still love a good Oxford shirt, and I find myself now coming back to Gantt and getting to work with the brand in in the way that I feel is is really amazing. Getting back on track and and finding myself want to you know stealing prototypes again and like <laughs> uh, like guys, this salesman sample is it? They're like. What am I going to say, no? Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of personal style, what would you say is the worst outfit you've worn or the worst trend you've been part of?
2: I have no regrets <laughs> uh, I, except except. Now I think it was like there was a time when I was working in a aforementioned denim store when like kind of really tight t-shirts was a thing and I n- really never mm-hmm. had the body for tight t-shirts and then or so I bought all these like small like little vintage t-shirts that I wore with my with my denims and I remember it, it vividly that our store manager came in like darling you know, I think the world of you, <laughs> but that T-shirt is not, like, that's not, it's not a good look on you. And Heartbreak. Like, oh. yeah. <laughs> My whole world just, like, oh, crum- no. crumbled. Uh, but apart from that, I've never been adventurous enough for... Um, so many proper regrets. No. Yeah.
0: No. So you're here in London for a very exciting project, would you
2: say a project? The Gun Archive Exhibition. Yes. What is it? What can we expect to see there? The Gantt Archive Exhibition is a curation of the Gantt Archives, very much focused on the first 30 years between 1949 and 1979 when we closed our last factory in the US, in New Haven. And it's the first time we showcased the Gantt Archives to the public. I'm very excited about it because I've been you know, wanting to tell that story for, for such a long time. It's like uh, showing people your attic and you can finally do it. In <laughs> yeah, public and experience. nobody wants to see it because it's <laughs> awful. But this is actually a quite, it's quite nice because like, first of all, not many people know our legacy or, and our history. So it's the first time we, we showcase um, the archive to the public. We've chosen to do it as like a traveling event. So we started in New York and uh, then what, what we wanted to do to, to make it like more interesting because you, you tend to get a bit blind when you just like do it with the Gantt eyes on. So in New York, we, of course, had throwing fits. James and, and Larry come in and, and do their spin on it, which was very fun. And How was it then?
0: What did they do? Because obviously we were able to I mean,
2: it, jump it, over to New York. It, I mean, basically they, they came to Stockholm, met with me and, and, and the guys in the archive and, and you know, I, I show them the archive and, I mean, I've, I've kind of curated that thing from the bit like over the past 17 years basically so so there is a permanent archive there is a permanent archive in in stockholm which people refer to as stoffes archive which is nice (laughs) (laughs) because i spent so much time in there and then we kind of just broke it down into what made sense for for like an audience into you know we talk about the madras we talk about the first 10 years we talk about the ivy league connection and all that stuff and then they put words to that the way that only throwing fits can do. <laughs> and our PR department were like, <gasps> which is, but they were like, they were good boys. So we kind of did that for New York, which very like New York appropriate and like for their audience and stuff. And then when we came to London, uh, we wanted to do it differently. So we spoke to Sam of...
0: Yeah, you are working with one of our favorite people in the world.
2: Sam Toro. Um shout out. And a then... Future podcast. So we, we spoke to him. He's a nerd. Like the rest of us, yeah. uh, he's extremely knowledgeable. We spoke to him and like how how would you do this and what would feel interesting to you. And then we basically had the same process. He he came to Stockholm, showed him around the archives, and kind of started. And and I think that he immediately like had his spin on it. So well, like, what did
0: he gravitate towards? Because he's. I obviously mean, from denim dudes
2: so I'm sure you had a lot to yeah, chat but, about on the denim side but 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 I think it's also like I think he's fascinated about like the impact that American sportswear has had on fashion in general but I think he also gravitates a lot towards the street scene and, and streetwear and stuff like that so and the whole kind of lo-fi culture in uh, low life culture in, in New York and yeah. you know hip hop kind of adopted preppy and all that stuff
1: so say each archive because you know it doesn't stop at London it goes to Paris and Stockholm, Stockholm. Yeah. Each one is created differently based on the partner. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. That's amazing. So, and yeah. so that you do get that New York spin. You do get that London spin.
2: Well, it doesn't necessarily... It becomes a London spin because it's Sam. Sam.
1: Yeah. But he's influenced by New York anyway, so...
2: Right. So I think it's more his eye. First of all, I mean, he's the nicest guy. It's oh, like, he's, the, like hug. Um <laughs> because his knowledge is i mean we we share like a lot of the same kind of you know interests i think yeah but he immediately when he started looking at and he's like is there is there other stuff like is there stuff that you know newer stuff as well i'm like yeah we have like upstairs we have everything from 1982 <laughs> until today and he was like yes <laughs> <laughs> so we started you know we went up there and like he's like but this is fucking like this is insane like this is so cool so his kind of take on it apart from because we're, we're keeping some elements from the curation from new york because we we also want to kind of have a, a backbone to the for sure for, to yeah the, the red thread going through like yeah like the early days and all that stuff because it's like this it comes with so much like gravitas and ponders but he immediately saw that connection to hip-hop and streetwear and how how ivy kind of transcended into this kind of like skatey thing as well he started like pulling pieces and then we kind of curated that together and it kind of tells the story and i think a really beautiful part of that is like right at like peak low life i would say like 93 when the snow beach collection from ralph yeah. came out and you know wu-tang and all that stuff gantt in the u.s which is like it was like nowhere yeah and that scene didn't exist in, in Europe. I mean, we were like humming to Hathaway, <laughs> uh not Dre. So it was a different scene. And now, like the hardcore, like you know, OGs in Europe, we'd be like, "Fuck you, man." <laughs> so he kind of did that that kind of take on things and did a like insanely good photo shoot and styled this like really cool kid in in like Sit. '90s pieces and stuff like that. So it gets a very it gets really gets its own twist here in London. So who are you working with in uh, Paris and Stockholm? In Paris. We're working, and what can we expect? Uh, in Paris, we're working with Manuel Schenk. Oh, sick. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. 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 Wait, does he still work
2: at Supreme? Uh no, no, no. He he's ex-Supreme. Yeah. I, I don't know if he's like He's cool he, as fuck. Yeah, yeah. He's mint. Yeah, he no, he's funny, and he's like very different like character from, yeah. from Sam. It's actually they're, they're a little bit the same because they're both yeah. quite, you know, low-key and and not I wouldn't say introvert, but like a little bit shy almost. Yeah. So Manuel, of course, then like being very kind of you know emerged into like the skate scene and stuff like that we'll see we're still it's still like work work in progress but it will definitely like connect back to parisian skate and all that stuff which is um i think it's going to be really really fun
1: so the exhibition it's already been in new york it's already been in london when this comes out is there plans if it goes well to keep going like you know tokyo places like that
2: yeah i just spoke to our country manager in china last week would be great to do it in shanghai it would be great to do it in Tokyo. We don't have a presence in, in Japan at the moment. That could be like our gateway drug into the Japanese market. I mean, they would eat it up yeah, for yeah. breakfast, uh, for sure. We'll probably do it in, in Germany. I, I think like right after we did New York, I think we all felt like this is like magic. This is such a good like concept to like, and also I think it's really, I like us being like a generous brand and like not like, eh, you know? you yeah. can't look at this because you might steal the inspiration. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's out on fucking Pinterest already so yeah who cares so i think it's also really nice to be able to share stuff uh, there's a lot of people who actually like me think it's like really interesting to go in and like like this shirt. it's like 73 years old look at that label because yeah. most of it like i wear it in a hobby. because it's like it's still it's beautiful stuff i think that's what makes it really interesting as well. It's not like going to... You know, you go and see these like exposés with like Dior or Alexander McQueen where, where it's more like going to an art show and everything is like cased in between glass and yeah. it's like... Oh! I mean, you know, take a, take a bow. But here you can like, you can fucking try it on if you want to. But that's so one of the other
1: like, things then is because you've obviously gone for these local... Heroes. Yeah. And I don't know if this has happened by accident or where it's, but you've been put on, but this is being held in Dijon's, which is a space run by Eclectic called Bone Soda. Yeah. You know really well. Yeah. And, like, they've been about this scene for so long, but they are... It just feels like it's, it's really it's, thought out yeah, what you guys are doing in regards to bringing in people.
0: It's effortlessly cool rather than it being, like the obvious spot to go to.
2: Yeah, I mean, we were looking at different venues and it was, I think, first of all, it needs to be a certain type of venue where you can like, A, fit the stuff in. Uh, it needs to kind of be a little bit of a blank canvas and you can't have like the already existing architecture take over too much, etc. Yeah. So we looked at a lot of like art galleries because it's like a blank canvas. And then this Dijon's popped up and then, yes, it is like, there's this creative powerhouse there, <laughs> bone soda. And we were just like, Ugh. yeah, makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had no clue what Dijon's was to be honest. Yeah, I was just like, it's only totally, if it's very new fantastic like the guys from, from Bone Soda came in yesterday and like hello and I was like you're like fucking coolest guy I've ever seen yeah it's annoying <laughs> uh, annoyingly cool yeah <laughs> I was just I'll, I'll hold my beer I'll just like
0: leave yeah. <laughs> so like do you reference the past in designs like what is it about an archive piece that makes you want to bring it back into circulation nerdiness I think nice um, is it about like the audience or is it like is it relevant thinking oh this would have sucked this time last year but it's cool now or do you come across a new archive piece if that makes sense how do you find a new archive piece and be like Fuck, this is amazing yeah we need to redo this
2: well first of all I mean us being Gant and I mean we've been doing what we've been doing for like seven decades now so I think what's interesting also having been with the same brand for quite a long time as I have been yeah even I was away for four years and then came back but you you kind of see how things evolve, and then and it also realize you know makes you realize how old you are when you start looking at things. Not from <laughs> when the it,
0: pieces you designed are in the archive, <laughs> and, and they're like in fashion again, which
2: is like <laughs> fucking terrible. But so it's like now Y two K. I'm like fuck. It, yeah.
1: Diesel it's, back in, yeah.
2: <laughs> Skinny jeans. No, so I think that like picking from the archives, like if we would have done this archive tour during the Gantt rugged days, we would never have like curated it the way that sam did now it wouldn't have been relevant to the same extent so i think that for me now when i'm and i i i'm looking at stuff in the archives now that i would never have looked at for gant rugger for instance because it was a different time it was a different style was different fashion was different first of all fashion was a lot more easy because there was like trends and everything was in order and nobody fucked it up with like (laughs) going you know bananas you're just like yeah. what are you doing you're supposed to be like hashtag menswear come back <laughs> yeah. you know, yes we can move we can tra- like slowly transcend into something more pitiomo. yeah okay so let's do that for like three years now come on come, back, please, come <laughs> back but it's really interesting because it also pushes you and gives you a lot of like new creative like energy and stuff like that to like see yeah what's happened over the years in 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 a single brand
0: what is your favorite piece for the archive in general and is
2: it in the london one did it make it over here they're all so special. <laughs> uh, but it, no, that was really British. <laughs> uh, no, but I think it's, to me, It's some of them are connected with an enormous amount of like time spent looking for that piece. There's one piece that we're actually showing, which is an LL Bean shirt produced by Gantt as a subcontractor. It doesn't say yeah. Gantt anywhere, but we were clever enough to put a little G stamp next to the Union Made stamp on all the shirts we did, whether it was for, for Gantt or for other brands. And I was looking for, for something like that. And when, when the guy from New York called me, I was like, this is going to be expensive man. And then he sent me a picture and I'm like <gasps> <laughs> I was going to say something inappropriate now. <laughs> <why>. <laughs> so there's like a couple of pieces like that, which to me is like very kind of grail pieces. Yeah. Then there's the infamous hamburger shirt, which made it from, from New York to this exhibition as well. Because we did different labels for every wholesale account we sold to. So there's every single Gantt shirt in the archive basically has a different label. Everyone says Gantt Shirt Makers or Gantt of New Haven, but then it says Dayton's or O'Brien's or Jack's Fashion or whatever, uh, or Barney's and Bloomingdale's, because we did all those as well. So if you're into that kind of stuff, you know tonight's going to be like a fest. no doubt yeah. yeah
1: who is like the gantt consumer because you said it's the right, the right time for the archives be brought out but like who who is buying gantt and like is who you want to be buying gantt different to where it is right now
2: uh yes and no i would say because well first of all since we're on so many markets i was in czech republic a couple of days ago and visited with our czech partners in prague beautiful city by the way in czech republic gantt is extremely premium Wow, it is yeah. to the point where um, they told me this and they've been working with us for like almost 30 years, I think, 20 years. It came to the point where like, if you're going for, to like a job interview, you basically need a Gancho <laughs> to like, you yeah. know, I'm your guy, like I'm successful. The I've prestige. made it. Yeah. So they've done an amazing job with, with the brand awareness. Maybe you and the there. Yeah. I mean, they would probably love it. Yeah. Um, nice holiday for you as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think one of the things for me is, you know, I've known Gantt, I suppose I sort of came into it in the Gant rugger era, the sort of tail end of the menswear. We went to the the sort of gifting suite and I think we were all kind of taken aback by the quality in the products. And like, you know, we we don't have to say this. Like there's no, this jacket, for example, we walked in straight away and all three of us just was like touching it, you know. Does he get first dibs? This is his jacket. That's mine. Mine's at the office. But yeah, he does get first dibs because, you know. What princess. He is the princess. (laughs) But I think that's the thing is like, actually you touch it and you realise... Once you get your hands on the product, right. um, like the two-piece that I really want that you, you've got as well, well, the shorts and, the shorts and like it's like a sick. proper americano, I, almost like I don't have the legs for it, but I will do. I need to take the sunbeds. Yeah, that it's, it's a very white, pale mix yeah. going on with yeah. it. It's, uh, I don't think my knees have seen sunlight since our beer it's trip. There you go. <laughs> but you know, so I think actually for for our listeners, I think actually if you can go in and get your hands on it and yeah. really touch it, you'll see where that value is from. Yes, yeah. it is I, premium. Like, yeah, and when you talk about that sort of market thing, it's premium. I was like, well. I get it. This feels like it should be like a 1,200 pound jacket.
2: Yeah. And it's what, nine? I think it's even seven. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: speaking of collections, what goes into a collection like, when you're thinking about it, is it individual pieces or is there a running theme going through it?
2: I mean, we have our, uh, what we call essentials, which is, um, you know, your your bread and butter will pays everybody's salaries. All the button-down shirts, all the the lambswool programs in the winter, some faded programs in the spring and all that stuff. So, like, the basics take up a huge part of the number of SKUs, like, you yeah. know, the pieces. And then there's iterations of that because something did really well last year and then the markets are like do it in more colors (laughs) and we're like we want to do new stuff so like collection planning and collection structure is like a science in itself i'm always like asking for more pieces to do like fun stuff and then some of that never sells and you know since it's always sales versus brand so to speak and they do Very different jobs but i think we've now we've landed in something that can accommodate a loyal consumer but also attract a new consumer and sometimes when you have these discussions and having been with brand for a very long time you also see that it's not a fight it's actually when brand and sales start holding each other's hands and and looking short term and long term equally because without brand you don't you know you're going to be dead in you know five years and and without sales you wouldn't have money to do the fun yeah. stuff and we've been very aggressive on this journey for the past three years I think it's it's only now becoming consumer facing that's a terrible word isn't it Um <laughs> it sound like business of fashion here but, it, but it's also we've been working behind the scenes for the better part of three years now you know the first thing you fix is social media visuals online it's not easy but it's quicker yeah. collections we start working with our collections 18 months before you guys see it so very long lead times and like yeah. a lot of stuff so I think Fall Winter 22 was the first one where people actually, you know, my Instagram was like, dude, what's happening with Gann? Like, can I get some? Or like, you know, influences that... Previously would have said no. You're yeah. Like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> that fake fur coat. Mm. Oh, yeah. So to me, I think the, be- the best measurement of being on the you know cusp of like finding that new consumer is also I always look at how many salesman samples get stolen stolen <laughs> from like you know collection rooms and stuff like that. And you like every time I go down, let like I'm I'm gonna go down and, like ask for that piece. Yeah. They're like It's, like, it's gone. Yeah, and you see some you know fucking cool kid in the street like, eh. yeah. like oh! and that's happening a lot. Like the blade stuff. Yeah, there isn't Flu. a single sample. I found the last black hoodie prototype in the office this morning that a guy is bringing over for for the exhibition. Is that yeah.
1: something you can do again then with with him? Is it going to try and be an ongoing thing? I mean, because the power that that, that was he like has. 100% a hundred percent a one off. Yeah, or. One of the things that I really like is you talk about changing the visuals. Mm. I think over the last few years, we've really appreciated the lookbooks. Mm. The styling's insane, Styling, so yeah, good. Models are great. You know, mm. photographers you work with are really cool. I really like that Gantt hasn't gone down the same thing as everyone else and just try to do an ALD lookbook, Mm. um, which is lovely. How involved are you as a CD in that stuff?
2: Very. Again, we have a whole team uh, in brand and marketing who are really, really good at what they do. But I think a big part of my job has been working together with Stellan or our global marketing director, and and Victor, who's our senior, he's actually creative director, brand, brand creative director. And it happens like his first job after design school was shooting the Gantt Rugger commercial, the ad campaign two thousand. 10 ish. Then, you know, I haven't seen Victor in like, you know, years. And then he ended up, Eleanor gave me a call and, like, so I hired this guy, you know, so talented, like, m- you know, just like a fucking genius. Victor Peak, I think you work with him. I'm like, are you kidding? So he's, <laughs> also, yeah, yeah, so he, like, we work extremely closely together in kind of like chiseling this out, elevating the lookbooks, being mindful about casting. Styling is done a lot by Vetton, this, like, really young genius in Sweden but we also use like external uh, stylists depends on like the theme sometimes what you want to achieve
1: so it's quite a multifaceted role and I suppose like people that are just starting in the industry what advice have you got for them whether it be like practical advice or just like you know emotional advice how how can they get to the point that you're at now
2: Uh, luck (laughs) but as as Klaus always told me, luck is the result of good planning, which I think is really, really true. And I hate talking about generations because in the fifties Elvis was dangerous because you know his hip hips were thrusting on stage. You know I find myself I'm I'm turning fifty this year and my my daughters are like twenty two and and twenty. So you're in
0: danger thrusting your hips. Uh, no,
2: thank God, no. I've I've done enough hip thrusting, but I think it's you know. But but there's these like constant discussions like Gen Z is acting this way, the millennials are this way. Gen Alpha is like, they're going to be fucked because they grew up on TikTok and all that stuff. Yeah. We're in it. So we, you know, just accept it. But, but I think the best lesson I've ever had, my CEO when I started at Gantt was like, first three months you started a place, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, don't have an opinion because you don't know anything. You might know a hundred things from all the other brands where you worked or like you're fresh out of school and like, we're the new shit. You know, yeah. I know I'm going to change this. No, you're not. You're like, shut the fuck up and listen. And then listen to everyone. Listen to the consumer, listen to your boss, listen to your peers, uh, listen to who's ever beneath you and just listen. And then once you've like soaked all this up, you know, shut up for a month more and then then go to work because not only will you be perceived as somebody who actually listens, which is a really good quality person. And then like put the hours in because coming to a place and asking what's in it for me, Uh, It's a really bad way to start things. Uh, It's more like, I'm here, put me to use. What do you need to be done, boss? Because that's how you get your your shit through. And then, you know, have some kind of talent. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm the most talented, creative person I've ever met. Uh, I've managed to do quite a, okay, for myself by being a little bit smart but also being like really really interested in what i'm doing
0: so the question we ask every guest theoretically if your house is on fire it hasn't spread to the to the attic though you're archive safe you can save one item of clothing from your wardrobe what would it be and why the watch i'm wearing nice
2: which is uh, a 1973 rolex 5513, or is it a 5512? i always forget
1: and that's with a leather strap
2: yeah uh the original strap is somewhere.
1: So looking to the future and talking about collabs, is there any collabs coming up with that we can get excited about?
2: We've never done Colos before and I think when I came back I, I didn't focus on our main collections. I came back. So I actually spent a lot of time in the archives getting them in order again because they were like all screwed up when I came back four years later. And then when I spoke to the CEO who got me back I was like I think collaborations is a good way to kind of like accelerate this brand rejuvenation. Let's not make it another one of the like colab fatigue moments yeah we started working with luke edward hall uh, oh of course yeah i I was a really big fan of so and then it's been you know blade was just like a weird thing my daughter was like dad blades wearing gant i'm like "Mm, what's what's a blade uh so that was fun and then we did wrangler which became like a passion project yeah you know I was like, yeah, let's do Wrangler. Because well, you were in the Varsity yes. the other day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. So, and and that kind of like didn't really make sense because it's like two not like the coolest brands in the world like working together. And I was like who's going to care uh, so, so you, like ex-
1: you need that exchange of like cool or power like that I ex- mean
2: to me it became because if you just take like Ant Wrangler today we're like yeah two great brands but I think the connotations and I think the ones that appreciated it were the ones that actually understood the clash between one side of you know American sports where early days with the other because they were like the working man's version and the work clothes and mm. rodeo and all that stuff and I think the, the collection actually came out like really it's beautiful yeah. so yes to answer your question (laughs) sorry (laughs) Um, yes we will we will definitely do more collaborations it's not something that we necessarily it's like so we're going to do two drops now two you know, when the occasion occurs and when it makes sense and it becomes purposeful. Yeah. And and like fun. And either like very unexpected, like, you know, my kid calling me in you know, like a drain gang thing. Maybe a
0: UK fashion podcast, potentially. Sorry? Maybe a UK fashion podcast. <laughs> yeah, it could be.
2: You know. I mean and also like it could like some things we do is like super small. Like Blade was like incredibly tight. It's like yeah. four different pieces. Sold out in four minutes. Yeah. You know. <laughs> gone and then stock x and, and braille brailled, were like <laughs> no so we'll definitely do collabs in the future as well uh, nothing that i like can tell you about now without yeah, yeah of course that
1: you have to fire yourself basically. Yeah, yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward then, who excites you in the fashion world?
2: I think, you know, where credit is due, I think that Teddy Santis and what he's done with Emilion D'Or deserves all the credit in the world. I think that looking at the product that they do, it's not crazy, it's just like good stuff. And then what they've done is excelled in creating a community that people want to belong to. I mean, I think it's the perfect marketing example of how you start with something that becomes almost like a movement. Yeah, You get a cult following, LVMH taps into yeah. it buys the <laughs> whole thing and all of a sudden goes from like super cool to evil corp no but yeah. <laughs> like I think what he's done and what they built is uh, extraordinary yeah he's clearly going after Ralph uh, and wants to to kind of get into that game a lot more I don't think it excites me from a fashion perspective because they basically do what we do I think they package it in a different way and you know we're we're two different sides of the same coin who excites me I mean I think our legacy is always like really great they do really interesting stuff they they do a lot of stuff that I hate when I see it and then I understand what they were thinking and I realize that that's fucking clever Yeah. (laughs) yeah and then I love it I would never wear it but then our legacy is probably one of the few brands where I I don't shop for myself that much yeah I wear the pieces I love from Gant and you Know, i pick up my jeans at frame because i worked i can only wear clothing from brands where i have worked yeah or am working that's the only kind of rule i have because it's convenient but from the but music legacy store. <laughs> is one of the few brands where i'll go you know on a regular basis and like try stuff on and like pick up a shirt here and there
1: um no, no printed jeans for you though no because like, <laughs> when you're talking yes. that's, that's what my mind was on like that Something that-, me,
2: that it's really clever and it's kind of it's really smart. But it's also blasphemy. Yeah. yeah, so
1: Matt ordered them, not knowing they were printed. <laughs> and they arrived, and we were just like, this is like, what, like two two years ago? And we were just like, what the fuck are these? I, yeah. You should have
2: kept some. I understand people who fuck with that. Yeah. But um, I wouldn't. Um, <laughs> then, you know, what excites me, the, the Saint-Laurent runway... Latest is one of the best shows I've seen in the past 10 years, I think. Anthony Vaccarello just blew my mind. And I think what he captured with, like, that late 80s silhouette, these women, you know, the leather jacket, I was just like, fucking hell, I just, like...
1: Do you still love fashion?
2: I always say I'm not a fashion guy, but I've realized, like, I probably am because I I get very kind of sucked into it. I spend most of my waking time, if I'm not cooking, thinking about it. Uh, But then it's also, like, very... Like, if I go on vacation, I could go four days without not giving a fuck, like, not caring at all. And then I'll see this, you know, lifeguard on the beach in Italy with this, like, perfectly washed-out red T-shirt that says Salvataggio... I'm like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> so uh, not because he's got a great body, uh, but no, because like that, it's like the perfect like sun faded T-shirt. So it's always with me. But I think I've also I've come to look at dynamics a lot more rather than maybe like outfits and yeah. special pieces. But I think Anthony Vaccarello's last runway is the one that caught my eye, and I was just like, this is so well done, and like beautiful and and then there's like you know I I, brands like Brunello Cuccinelli I can go in there in my sleep and just do this (laughs) and like oh right yeah this is Brunello because everything is like oh it's so soft (laughs) and like expensive so it's like so that's fun so it's like going into Bergdorf Goodman in New York like the two bottom floors on on men's where it's just like old money and like super uh laura Piana, chiton, you know all that stuff and then you come up and it's just like <sighs> so i thought it was kit but kaitan we weren't aware of it and then like
1: we went to the store and like they've got coats that are like 40 grand in oh, there oh yeah, yeah yeah it's the most wild cause it's like there's one type of they own that one type of wall that's like right. one sheep or like one goat up yeah. on this mountain. It's yeah, like, it's
2: like shave that one. Yeah. No, wait, <laughs> shave this one.
1: I was absolutely mind blown by like the fact that there's a coat for £40,000 just on retail. Yeah. Nuts. So, the, finally, before we get into your dream outfit, how
0: are like utilising new technologies?
2: We're looking into three D design tools, uh, which can be really helpful when you want to kind of like speed develop and like you know, let's see what this print looks like on that. I mean, I use Photoshop since I can't draw, so I mean, Photoshop is my go to tool. I can pretty much Photoshop anything today, which is scary but good. <laughs> um, deep fake, uh, <laughs> and then there's all these like uh technologies more on the production side of things that i'm like not well versed in maybe but are from a sustainability aspect extremely interesting there's a guy i met at a dinner who turns out to own a company that does hangers i forgot the name otherwise i would plug it now who's developed a proprietary is that the expression yeah technique yeah Uh, well they own that one right Right. yeah where they like press paper so with so much pressure and heat that it becomes like plastic all right, um, and work with Chanel, Dior, like, and like. So he sent me some hangers, and I'm like, "This is insane." Yeah. So it's a lot of like stuff like that. But then, from a design perspective, I mean, there's so much stuff going on with AI now that I think yeah, is unavoidable I f- is yeah. Cool. I, I follow this account on on Instagram, Stranger Things with a four instead of a. Who is this fucking marvel? He just does these Nike collabs. Totally unendorsed and just like for fun, probably hoping that Nike, they yeah. absolutely got his eye on him Yeah, now. And it's just like fucking brilliant. And it's all Photoshop and AI and it's uh, mind-blowing. Yeah, He's basically created a brand that every fucking kid out there would kill to get yeah. their hands on. And it doesn't even exist physically Sir, so. i mean i'm happy as long as ai don't take my job <laughs> chat gpt could probably do this interview with you <laughs> and be more fun but so. no I, I
1: watched a video the other day where they did like 20, 20 professions, and can chat GPT, like do it for us. It. So it'd be like a doctor, a graphic designer, a yeah. And Yeah, it was like, so art and everyone was like, even the ones that where it kind of got the answer, other like, no, no, I can't do my job. We can't do my job. I was like, yeah. oh, they're, they're, they're panicking right
2: now. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, could 100% do my job.
1: <laughs> and yeah, before we go to the bonus content, uh, where we get to find out about your favourite things in the world, we have got one final question for you. As we move forward in technology, you know, we're going to have to represent ourselves online, Forever. So what is that one grail fit that you'll be immortalized in?
2: A pair of perfectly worn in, broken in 501 denims.
1: When you say
0: perfectly broken in, what is what is a patina looking like?
2: I love the fit from the eighties, but in the nineteen fifties denim. Yeah. So like a really good pair of five oh ones, pair of good sneakers. Maybe the ones I'm wearing today. Those mm-hmm. pretty classic, actually. Very worn in, broken in Oxford shirt. Blue or cream, couldn't say. The watch I'm wearing, or a sixty-two, sixty-three, Paul Newman. That would be nice. And a really nice weekend bag in leather. Nice. I think then I'm... And also, like, living in a country where I could wear that pretty much Yeah, around. you Yeah, know, it's
1: digital, so we're, we're golden with it. Yeah, uh, yeah right, yeah. Oh, and I think
2: that's my, that's my, that's my go-to amazing
0: it has been a pleasure and honor putting with you sir thank you for having me gonna head over to the bonus content as well if you want to listen to that then you have to subscribe to our patreon unfortunately pay up pay up exactly but yeah thank you so much for joining us Thanks. uh it's gonna be a great day as well because we now got the archive to go to yes and big a event tonight well. so happy days thank you very much thank, thank you great. so much thank you
2: catch you in a bit bye